Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Nigel Griswold, co-founder and CEO of Dynamo Metrics and your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Rob Lynn, Inventory Director at the Detroit Land Bank Authority. Rob Lynn is a seventh-generation Detroiter. As the Inventory Director at the Detroit Land Bank Authority, he manages an inventory of 86,000 parcels and oversees research, strategy, field operations, and land use policy development for the organization. Rob's work at the Detroit Land Bank Authority is focused on housing strategy, vacant land planning, demographic and real estate analysis, and leveraging data to create more granular and proactive responses to the city's vacant properties. In addition to his work at the Land Bank, Robert serves as an adjunct professor of GIS and statistics at Lawrence Technological University and is on the board of the Michigan Association of Land Banks. He holds a BA in economics and a master's of urban planning in housing and economic development from the University of Michigan and is an author of several books, including Mapping Detroit, Land, Community, and Shaping a City from 2015 and Belle Isle to Eight Mile, an insider's guide to Detroit. Our conversation covers how the Detroit Land Bank Authority tackles its large inventory, the impact of vacancy and abandonment on neighborhood health, how COVID and social justice movements are impacting land bank policy, and the role of community land trusts. And now my conversation with Rob. All right, uh, welcome to Ahead of the Curve. Uh, so excited to have Robbie Lynn um, from the Detroit Land Bank Authority on the podcast today. Um, Robbie and I have been doing some work circling each other for probably what's pushing eight years, some, some time now, and just really excited. Uh, Robbie, Robbie dives into a lot of the inventory work at the Detroit Land Bank Authority, and, um, and he's graciously accepted being on the podcast. I'm just really excited to have you here, Robbie. Well, thank you so much for having me, Nigel. I can't uh, tell you how excited I am to be here. I've been a long-term fan of yours, you know, long before your podcasting days, but also <laughs> um, been a big fan of the podcast, frankly. I, I think I've listened to every episode thus far on my uh, evening dog walks. Wow, that's awesome. I, we love to have listeners. We found this topic early on in COVID and we're like, man, what are what are people going to do like economic development, community development, land bank environments? How is that going to affect the communities that we serve? Right. And so we started diving into this thing and bringing on practitioners and bringing on folks who live and breathe this type of work that, you know, circulates housing and property on a daily basis. And just wanted to dive into people's heads and see how they're being impacted by the pandemic. And it's turned into a thing like people are listening. It's fantastic. I really appreciate that. Yeah, it's definitely one of those ideas where I'm just jealous that I didn't think of it first. I'm so, you know, <laughs> I, I jealousy get to talk to these giants of the land banking and blight world like Alan Malik and Jerry Paffendorf and Jim Rokakis and Eric Schertzing. But uh, I'm excited to uh, get to share in this story, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. So how about we just start at you and your background and Robbie Lynn in the context of the Land Bank Authority and your professional background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Well, I'm a seventh generation uh, Detroiter. I grew up on the city's east side. And I, you know, I think it's really hard to grow up in Detroit without developing at least a passing interest in real estate. 
you know, I, I, I go so far as to say that probably at least half of social conversations in the city touch on home values, blight, new development, home repair, or, you know, the housing market broadly. And, and I think with so much surplus real estate, it's a very accessible thing for people, much more so than it is perhaps in a city like Austin or New York. So long story short, I uh, went to U of M to study economics and ultimately uh, continued on for a master's of urban planning and housing and economic development. In undergrad, I came to Ann Arbor with this real estate interest, but didn't really know how to channel it. Um, I'd never heard of urban planning, but uh, you know, early on, I was this environmental science major with kind of a academic nomadic tendency. But uh, by happenstance, I went to a talk to see then Genesee County Treasurer Dan Kildee speak about his role in starting the then fairly new Genesee County Land Bank. And uh, it's really hard for me to understate the pivotal nature of this moment in my life. I was you know, enamored by this land banking concept I'd never heard about. I love the pragmatism, and I knew I wanted to pursue it further. It seemed to really sit at the intersection of my interests in real estate, land use, underdog cities, and social justice. I ended up doing my senior thesis on the economics of demolition and ultimately went on to grad school to study with Margie Dewar at uh, U of M's planning school. Oh, fantastic. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the great sort of privileges of my life. After school, I came back to Detroit and I worked at Data Driven Detroit for several years where I really worked in the spatial numeric data analysis space, really focusing on land use and demographic data, especially. And one day I got a call from a, a friend, Mike Brady, who asked me if I could help on this sort of moonlight pro bono project, helping the city of Detroit apply for hardest hit fund money for demolition. And I, I worked on the project with him and then became somewhat disconnected uh, from the project. But then about a year later, I got a call from Mike. He had started working at the land bank and he recruited me to join him. Uh, and that's really you know, how I got here to where I am today. And I've been at the land bank now for about six and a half years. Wow, that's a great story. And so I love that your story has the gravity of Dan Kildee in it as well. That, that was a big influencer in my finding of all this trajectory of work also. I got to do I got to do a thesis focused on um, the impact of demolition on neighboring home values and the the demolition program of the Genesee County Land Bank and how that impacted nearby value and that was when Congressman Kildee was still the treasurer. There you go. So it was like same time period and the gravity of of that movement across the Midwest and what was happening with our cities. Like it was kind of like a big call to action and we mm -hmm. found it. You know, I, I love that we share that. No, and I, I in school, uh, actually became, well, actually in school, but also later in my career, uh, referred back to uh, your work with Dan several times and was a big fan <laughs> of it. Uh, and it took me many years to connect the dot that you were the same person who wrote that report. So I owe you a, a debt of gratitude. Yeah, cool. So I wonder, so tell me more. I want to dive in a little bit about kind of like how it came together. And in your knowledge of the history of the hardest hit fund stuff, because that's a really interesting moment in Detroit. There was the bankruptcy was unfolding, mm -hmm. right? We had the Motor City Mapping uh, project happening. It was just a really exciting data moment in Detroit. And that's around the same time Dynamo Metrics, us, we put out our impact report from the, the initial slug of the hardest hit funds 
and it moved a whole other slug of hardest hit funds. Like all of that, like dynamics. And that's when we met, right? Mm -hmm. Because you were already at Land Bank by that time. I didn't, I never knew you at Data Driven Detroit. I knew you at Land Bank, I think all the way through. Um, Yeah, I think I uh, was, you know, long aware of your work, but did not meet you uh, until I started working at uh, uh, the DLBA. Yeah, so uh, will you unpack kind of like your day-to-day the context of going after the initial slug of hardest hit funds and how, like what the role of data was and, and kind of what it was and why, why it was being done? Sure. Well, the hardest hit funds were, you know, originally part of the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, um, which was part of the sort of Obama era stimulus package during the foreclosure and housing crisis. And I think through, uh, in no small part, uh, and thanks to your hard work, the Treasury Department redirected some of those funds to demolition for cities, really with the understanding that if cities were able to alleviate some of the blight, property values would increase, thus sort of putting a lot of underwater homeowners back kind of above water, get their heads above water. And so Detroit ultimately applied for five different rounds of HHF funding for demolition, but all were really centered on this idea of bettering neighborhoods to protect homeowners from from a foreclosure. And so, uh, you know, we pulled together lots of data on blight, on foreclosures, on home value, and on demolition. I think really perhaps none better than Dynamo's report on, you know, the impact of the first year of HHF on home values. And as I recall, ultimately the report found that. Every demolition caused a 4.2% increase in home values in the in, a, in about a 500-foot radius. And within mm-hmm. the first year, had increased home values by about $209 million citywide. That's right. That's right. Thank you for that. That's It was really important work for us, you know, being a Michigan person. And, like, I kind of always knew that Detroit was going to come in and be a, a, an important part of my career. And, and that was, like, the moment. We had a bankruptcy unfolding. There was a data crisis. Like we didn't know what was happening on all the properties. And that Motor City Mapping Initiative was doing its work to try to actually get real information on every property in terms of current status, at least. What what our angle was is, hey, we need actual time series data. We want to see the dynamics of the economy and the changes. And you insert this rapid... Uh, you know, change in these neighborhoods where things that used to be blighted aren't blighted anymore, you're going to change the way neighborhoods look, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to change the way that value looks. You might not go mortgage foreclosure because it's worth it to scrape the dollars together to keep the home. Mm-hmm. So is is definitely work there. So how, through those five rounds, were you pretty close to those applications? And what what did that look like? Because right now, like COVID time, everyone's like, you know, local government, state government, it's like, okay, we have these big transfers coming from the federal government, but we got to distribute them all the way down to like the citizens at the end of the day who are hurting. That process, I think, is very interesting, specifically from like an institutional standpoint. How were those prepared? And was there a lot of data in those? Or were you close to that? Or and what was the outcome? Like, what was the total amount that was captured and all that? I'm curious about Mm -hmm. that. Well, you know, I think it's, hard for me to 
it's hard for me to really to understate the growth we've had in the amount of data available to us in this space during this period. You know, before Motor City Mapping and before a lot of the sort of projects that were coming about at that same time, you know, including Dynamo's work, there was really a dearth of real estate data in the city. You know, the, I don't think there was really good awareness over what public entities owned, what was in the demolition queue, what was owned by who, what was tax delinquent. You know, everything was really being conducted with spreadsheets and duct tape. And so I think that was really reflected in this growth, you know, uh, has been really been reflected in every single application from the first to the fifth. By the fifth, we are really getting into statistical modeling and trying to forecast. And I think we had really sort of at least partly caught up with some of the leaders in this space, like uh, Cuyahoga County. But uh, early on, it was really based on assessor data of what they thought the city owned um, and used the 2009 Detroit Residential Parcel Survey for a condition data, which of course at that point was four, four and a half to five years old. But by the final application, we're really able to draw upon a lot more sophisticated techniques. So we had developed a predictive model to determine occupancy of properties, and we had completed sort of successive layers of Motor City Mapping Surveying to update for changes in property condition. You know, I think... It's hard for me to understate the significance of the Motor City Mapping Project to the land bank and to this era in the city's history. There had really never been something that was so transformative in the city's data picture. It you know, caused not only for us to get a comprehensive set of property condition, but also Data Dream Detroit did a lot of good work after I left on really kind of creating a, a clean, comprehensive parcel file where everything was where it should be, which really served as a marvelous foundation for us to build upon. Ultimately, between the five rounds, the city received $265 million for demolition, the first round being 50 and it kind of varying between the subsequent rounds. Right. So the, to pull a couple of things together, and there's the 265, I want to keep that in our brain as like, what is the total size of, of the, the foreclosure and abandonment and blight situation in Detroit? And what portion of that was, was actually addressed with the 265? I think that's really important to kind of hold and look at because I'd like to dive down inventory lane with you in a little bit here. So during this time of the bankruptcy and the emergence for bankruptcy in Motor City Mapping and HHF, one of our newly elected mayor Duggan's first actions was to actually split the planning department into two pieces. And so all of the planning work was, it was and still is carried out by the planning and development department, PDD, we call it for short, mm -hmm. uh, whereas all of the federal funding and housing financing work is now carried out by a new department, the housing and revitalization department, HRD. Got it. There's a tripod there because you have the land bank doing its work uh, independently. Is there coordination with those departments? How does that, how does that institutionally play out? Uh, that's a, a great question, Nigel. You know, I think historically, you know, in the 90s and in the aughts before um, Mayor Duggan uh, took office, the planning department also oversaw uh, surplus property sales. And so it really sort of served as the de facto land bank for the city before the DLBA really kind of came into its own in 2014. And so 
it really does sort of coordinate all these activities since the, the real estate sales and the housing financing and planning work are carried out in different departments. The city is organized into three development regions, east, west, and central, really broken up by council district more or less. And there's a weekly meeting between the three organizations as well as a few others to really discuss all of the planning and on-the-ground real estate work that each of us is carrying on. So there's kind of this constant ongoing coordination among each group. Got it. How many council districts? There are seven council districts. Okay. And so you have all those coordinations that are happening cross-departmentally. And then does the does the county play a role anymore in any of that work? Or is the Detroit Land Bank Authority that player on the foreclosure side now? You know, I think Detroit is a bit of a uh, unique animal in the land banking space because we are the only municipal land bank in the state and one of the few nationally. And so there's both a Detroit land bank and a Wayne County land bank. And we have a sort of informal agreement that we really focus all of our efforts on the city and they work on all the out-county properties. And so we both have a a separate relationship with the county treasurer who oversees the uh, foreclosure process. And so we're both the DLBA and the WCLBA are constantly acquiring properties from the Wayne County treasurer each year. That makes sense. That makes sense. And, um, and I do this every time, but I think it's important for listeners, like if, if they come in and this is their first podcast, kind of your definition of the role of a land bank, what a land bank does and in the context of the Detroit Land Bank, just for for folks' edification? Sure. You know, in general, I think land banks are really a single-purpose government entity or quasi-governmental entity really charged with being the owner of last resort for vacant, blighted, and abandoned properties uh, in the city or in the county. And uh, land banks have a lot of sort of special statutory powers granted in the state's enabling laws that allow it to do quiet title very rapidly, allow it to do land assembly in a very streamlined fashion, and to sell property at really nominal rates. A lot of cities are forced to sell property at fair market value, and one of Land Bank's tools is being able to really look for, you know, projects with the greatest impact rather than, you know, with the biggest uh, pockets. Right. And a big part of that power is it's all about transfer, right? Like mm-hmm. folks who don't pay their property taxes, there's a transfer of that title with an effort towards effectively getting those properties tax productive again. Yeah. So in uh, Michigan, when a resident stops paying taxes, their property interest tax foreclosure in the third year of tax delinquency and all of those properties each year are put to public auction and any of the properties that remain unsold uh, through both that initial auction as well as a subsequent auction are uh, made available to the local land banks who you know generally uh, take them on and add them to their inventory to try to mm-hmm. steer them to a productive reuse. Right. And so there's not all properties that are having property problems are necessarily foreclosed, right? If you're paying your taxes, you can have uh, an abandoned or blighted building that if someone's up to date on their taxes, is there another route? You know, that's a great point. And I think one that 
causes a lot of confusion in the eyes of residents. I think there's a belief that you know, if, if it's a blighted property in the city, it must be abandoned and it must be owned by the land bank. But there's actually a universe of several thousand properties, we believe, in the city where taxes are current or at least current enough not to be foreclosed, but they're very, you know, outwardly blighted. And so I think while tax foreclosure is probably the strongest tool to abate abandoned property, you know, there are others available. So, you know, the land bank operates a fairly large nuisance abatement program where we use a common law nuisance doctrine lawsuit structure to sue the owners of these abandoned vacant properties for title to the properties in exchange for abating the nuisance. And so we will take the owner to court and then ask the judge to grant us title. And if the owner can't demonstrate that they're going to change course and take care of the property, the, the courts will give us title to the property. And then we are charged with rehabbing it, selling it or demolishing it. Got it. So you guys use two of the of the government powers. It's both transfer and nuisance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so I'm thinking about this inventory now. You are head of inventory at the land bank, correct? Mm-hmm. I love that there's a finite number of parcels in the city of Detroit. What's the number? Isn't it like three hundred eighty-five thousand parcels, something like that? You are on the money, Nigel. Yes. 385,000 uh, parcels of which about 140 or 140,000 are vacant lots. 140,000 vacant lots mm-hmm. in the city of Detroit. And they're non-adjacent, right? Yeah, uh, we have a, a side lot program um, where we sell vacant lots to adjacent residents, but the majority of, of our vacant lots are not adjacent to any resident and many of them are not adjacent to one another. Right. I want to talk about vacant lots specifically and like merging those for economic development activity or different growth or um, or new parks or just the different, like the optionality that gets opened up. I think that is a really interesting line of discussion on the inventory discussion for sure. But I want to stay on the structures that are still standing for a bit. Those standing structures that are, you know, dilapidated in the neighborhoods that are still there. There's no people in them. No one's paying taxes. The land bank is taking on the burden through the transfer. And the goal is to ultimately reach tax productivity again, but there's a holding time, right? There's mm-hmm. the in-betweens. And your experience with that inventory, like, do you have stories of the effects? You know, I have. we have the statistics that shows the property value impact and all the things, but do you have like on the ground stories of how lives are impacted by those properties? I often have to think about it really in the inverse, Nigel. You know, I probably field three or four calls a day from residents who have this blighted, abandoned house next to them that can uh, harbor animals, can be, you know, unattractive nuisance for children, can be a real risk for fire. In some cases, this house may be falling over onto the resident's house. But I really see like one of the great kind of opportunities of my job is to like take that call and like run the problem down until it's a positive outcome for the resident. You know, I, I feel like an incredible amount of gratitude that I'm able to, you know, from my seat 
you know, potentially acquire a property from the county treasurer's office, put it into the demolition queue, get it knocked down, then move it to the sidelock queue and sell it to the resident so they can turn this like fire hazard that's been causing them anxiety for years into a beautiful side yard where they can, you know, plant flowers or build a a swing set. But, uh, you know, we hear stories every day about the sort of issues these properties pose for residents. And so we really try to do our best to uh, steer them in a positive direction and create opportunities for residents. Oh, I love that. That's like the block and tackle of the act of the action. You get to be right there in it. Like you get to make that come to fruition. Is that right? It's honestly the best part of my job and something very unique. I've been offered a cakes and fruit baskets and <laughs> hugs and uh, uh, it's it brings so much satisfaction and like I feel like so often my job is you know looking at abstract data sets at 30,000 feet but it really sort of humanizes the work and really sort of serves as a reminder for like why we're here and doing what we're doing. Yeah, that's fantastic. So will you take me through like from a practitioner's like a nerdy practitioner's point of view the actual operational actions from like the call comes in and someone's like, Hey man, can you guys impact this property? It's causing me problems. And you're, and you're like, okay, now I'm going to go. What does go look like? Well, you know, I think one of the things I didn't fully appreciate until I got to the land bank was that every single property has a story and is, you know, has a truly unique uh, history and circumstance. And so one of the sort of big values I think my team brings is really sort of unpacking these stories to sort of clear any roadblocks to getting these properties returned to productive reuse. And so, you know, oftentimes a call will come in and we'll begin by assessing whether we own it and then, you know, what the resident wants and to try to sort of mash that up with the data we have on the property itself and the city's planning priorities to try to really sort of, you know, create a property specific strategy for each and every parcel in our inventory. And so I think this is oftentimes work we'd be doing otherwise, but oftentimes uh, a call from a resident will kind of bring this to the fore in our minds and it'll kind of jump the queue because we're trying to be really responsive to public input. You know, for example, I had one a couple weeks ago where I got a call from a resident on the city's east side. It was a you know badly fire damaged property that had been begun sort of leaning over the resident's fence, and I looked into it and realized that it was still owned by the county treasurer, but had kind of fallen off the apple cart several years ago and had been never been transferred. And so I you know called their contacts there, took title to the property, got the city to order a emergency demolition, and now in the process of deeding the property to the resident as as a side lot. That's like week to week work for you. That's that's beautiful. That's amazing work. So here's the thing that comes to my mind and like the follow-on question that comes up for me is you have some number of existing inventory. Mm-hmm. Right? What is where are you guys at on inventory size right now? We have uh, 86,000 parcels in inventory right now, of which just shy of 20,000 are structures. So you have 65, 66,000 vacant lots and 20,000 structures in mm-hmm. your inventory. Are you guys far and away the largest land bank in this country? You know, that's a question I get uh, <laughs> oftentimes. Um, I think that I, might be true. <laughs> I think by most measures we are. Um, <laughs> you know, our inventory is significantly smaller than it once was. You mm-hmm. know, there was a time, you know, I guess I'll say 
overall, we've acquired you know about 110,000 properties uh, all time. 115,000 properties. And so we've sold a lot along the way and have really robust Mm -hmm. programs to sell it. But Mm -hmm. um, I still think we're several times larger than the next land bank in the country. Yeah, yeah. The the question that I have then, so that's established, like there's a lot already in the queue. And so what are the operations surrounding like proactive redistribution to tax productivity? How does that work? So I think... When we talk about really preparing properties for sale, I kind of think about it uh, through two different lenses. On one hand, we have the structures, and on the other hand, we have the vacant lots. Um, and so with vacant lots, we have a sort of a number of set criteria. We have 14 criteria that make a property eligible for our side lot program. And so if a property you know, isn't in an active city planning project area, doesn't have back taxes, is zoned residentially is adjacent to an occupied property, doesn't have demolition liens, et cetera, et cetera. It gets listed in, through a bulk process and you know listed as a side lot. And right now, between a half and a third of our vacant lots are for sale currently on our website on as as a side lot. Got um, it. But you know, of course there's that other half of vacant lots, which many of them really fall in sort of city planning project areas. And so we have um, in my team, to some extent, but also in our disposition department, teams working on land assembly, industrial expansion work, urban ag- agricultural sales. And so all of those lots kind of then fall into that pipeline. And, you know, we may you know identify that we have 10 contiguous lots in a neighborhood. And so we'll clear title, merge them into one larger parcel, and then list it for sales for an agricultural use, for example, if that you know aligns with the city's planning right. strategy. Um, or we, you know, may take all the land kind of adjacent to you know industrial projects and hold them for industrial expansion since the city planning department has really been emphasizing job creating endeavors. Got it. The word there that stuck out in my mind was contingent upon planning strategy. So how do those overlays work? Can you talk about planning strategy a little bit and how is that coordination with the city or is that with local groups or how does that how does that work? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. And I think this is a great time to talk about it since we're presently kind of overhauling this process, um, Nigel. But um, the land bank really does not consider itself a planning entity and you know we're not a part of city government formally and so we really take direction from the city planning department and the city planning teams in other departments like parks the airport on planning decisions and so we see our role as really being the the folks who are working and kind of executing these strategies that that they're giving us got it um, Go and on. so we just, you know, I think I think the day or two before Governor Whitmer's first executive order kind of placing controls on public meetings and going out of your house, our board passed a new uh, set of vacant land policies in giving us a lot more authority to sell vacant land and a lot of new channels to move vacant land to the hands of residents. And one of those policies is a land review policy, which I think really makes the project hold planning direction a lot more clear and a lot more transparent for residents. And so ultimately every city department has the ability to make a request to hold land in a certain area for an approved city project. And 
with the blessing of the city planning director, we place that hold. And then we also are going to begin publishing a map of all these areas. And so residents will really understand why a lot is not available to them. Ah, fantastic. So it's like, that is like reminiscent of like a quality control feature, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you can go into a certain area where there's, whether the demand comes from the outside, whether it's public sector, private sector, whatever, to do something to the spot, you actually open up the plan and the planning strategy and you overlay that use against what the preset planning was. Is that Mm -hmm. right? I think that's spot on. As part of this, we also are going to begin providing, you know, with every single planning, you know, project coordination area or hold area, we're also going to have sort of a designated city liaison. And so, you know, if the city parks department wants to hold a number of properties adjacent to a park to expand it, we're able to refer residents to the planning staff who are working on that project. So I think it'll really be a phenomenal tool for resident engagement and transparency. Wow, that's fantastic. So this is a moment to talk about, you know, it's a new world. It's it's COVID world. It's pandemic world. Mm-hmm. And, and so I wonder how, for example, like a thought that comes to mind is who knows what's going to happen with schools right now. A lot of folks are, you know, if you go into the school, like all the risks, all the things and people in general, like we still want to be together, but we'd like to be together outside a little more. Mm -hmm. And then like traditional commercial corridor investment. I'm just like listing off some of the things that are like affected and may have years of effect. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think about you guys as like a, a strategic partner or vehicle within delivering properties, how folks want them to be planned for or used and just like how, how COVID plays into that. Could there be a strategy of the planning department that's focused on parks, for example, because our parks want to get more use or something and, and how would the land bank play a role in that? The real question is how has COVID impacted your work and like, do you communicate with neighborhood groups and local environments where you guys have a lot of property what are you hearing and like, how does your stuff overlay? Yeah, I think there are a lot of great thoughts there. From a COVID response standpoint, we've seen a, a surge in demand for our vacant land and are working diligently to expand access. And I think we've had a lot of sort of, I think right now we're still at the sort of conceptual design phase, but you know, exploring ideas like starting a commercial side lot program where businesses can more quickly and easily buy lots adjacent to them to open up patio service and things long term. Wow. Um, but I think in a from a planning standpoint and from an engagement standpoint, I think you, you I think you're raising some great questions. Like we have pivoted a lot of our programs to become virtual. You know, the land bank hosts open houses for all of our auction properties. We host building block events where we list numbers of properties in a single neighborhood all at once. We host office hours. We partner with city council members and the mayor and the mayor's teams on all these engagement opportunities. And we've uh, tried to pivot all these to virtual connections. And I, I think we've seen a lot of, a lot of initial success in reaching residents. You know, our first building block event, our first virtual building block event rather was done on Zoom a couple months ago and we had 3,000 views uh, both live but also subsequently on Facebook, which, you know, for us was phenomenal. And I really hope Mm -hmm. to kind of harness this energy and like innovating new ways to reach residents in a, in this kind of post-COVID or COVID world we're in right now. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. That's interesting for sure. That's so cities, a lot of cities got dollars from the CARES Act, right? Mm-hmm. Like CDBG money, different packets of cash coming from the feds to triage against the fallout of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if, have you guys done any like, like making your properties available, like all those resources getting need to get distributed to the people, like COVID testing sites and different things like that. Has Land Bank like um, participated in in any of that coordination? You know, I think we've been a a partner to the city in some of their COVID planning work, but uh, I think this has been largely driven by the city government itself. You know, they were kind of three different rounds of CDBG baked into the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of two rounds of funding for entitlement communities and one for states, and. We don't know yet with the second round of entitlement community funding than the CARES Act, but the first round has really been dedicated to protecting renters and to uh, you know housing investment, but really through the city's housing department and really has not been a land bank centric strategy thus far. Got it. I'm, I'm really curious about those distributions of resources from the feds and how given, I mean, 86,000 properties like the availability of that property, like part of me like cycles in, like thoughts that have been brewing are like how it cycles into the social equity movements and social justice movements. In my sense of that, like I'm, I'm curious, like I want to do a check-in with you about that in Detroit, how that, because you have COVID and then you overlay social equity, social justice movements. My, my sense of it is that there, there's kind of like a really big opportunity right now because ownership and equity and actual property is like part of that, Mm -hmm. right? And in economic development resources in historically disinvested areas being targeted onto properties that can now be owned, there's an opportunity there. And so Mm -hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on those things. You know, for me personally, and for the rest of the land bank's leadership, social justice and racial equity are really kind of critical and, you know, frankly, guiding values. And, you know, we see ourselves as playing a role in an increasingly inclusive housing market in the city and really as providing an opportunity for homeownership to those who have been traditionally excluded. You know, we take a lot of pride in our efforts to promote uh, housing access. We offer uh, considerable discounts to folks who take a housing counseling class and offer discounts up to 90% on our land for folks who develop affordable housing. Um, and I think we really take a lot of pride in the fact that 70% of our home buyers are African-American and the vast majority are low income. You know, for years, the city has seen declining home ownership, but uh, per the latest data from the Census Bureau, this has begun to a reverse in the last few years. And we really believe that we play a role in this like change in trends. Mm-hmm. But I think we're still digesting all of the social dialogue, uh, so all the social justice dialogue going on at the moment. But really actively thinking about how we can further our efforts of being an agent for a socially just outcome in the housing market. I think there's a real opportunity to incubate systemic change right now. But I think mm-hmm. that's still taking shape. You know, I, I'm really excited by the promise of tools like a community land trusts and other programs to provide training to residents to increase access, but I think still very much in the sort of a conceptual phase of these ideas. Can you unpack community land trusts, like how that works and what the role of the land bank would be to bring one of those to fruition? So I think ultimately limited equity or shared equity 
housing tools can take a few different shapes, but in the traditional sense, a land bank would sell a tract of property to a separate nonprofit entity, really a, a land trust, which would be owned by the residents living in the properties. And so, so within a boundary zone, literally like the, the residents within a boundary zone own a nonprofit that owns some of the properties within that boundary set. Is that right? Exactly. And the idea being that they can, the nonprofit can then make the investments, make the properties habitable and offer them to residents affordably. So residents would take title to, you know, I think typically a long-term ground lease rather than outright title. And so they'd be able to own the property, enjoy the property, and you know, make use of it. But when they go to sell, they would only really own the structure and not the land uh, below. Um, and so the by separating the house and the lot, uh, legally, you can share those, uh, those gains in equity with the next generation to kind of preserve long-term affordability. Right. So you, you can secure stable housing prices. Exactly. I, th- I think that's a much more uh, articulate way of saying it, that it's really a tool no. to create long-term affordability and sort of, you know, a stability in a market where housing prices may increase. Right. This is such a big point. Gentrification is the term that is commonly used, right? But when we see change, I mean, we have these, you know, older industrial cities across the Midwest and up and down the East Coast and the South where we've had a you know a transitioning global economy for 50 years that is you know a lot of folks that used to be in those cities aren't in those cities anymore for whatever reason right mm-hmm. and that's a separate podcast <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. but but we know that we got a lot of vacant land in those places right those that are still there and as those cities adjust and position for you know economic competitiveness under the new state of the situation we have a lot of empty structures. Some need to come down, maybe some get invested in, you know, the demand in the housing stock varies based on the job spread that's in that zone. All those things are happening, right? Mm -hmm. And so what that delivers is an environment where some places that have been historically disinvested in are really cheap, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot of money, you can go in there, buy it all up and change it and make it really high value, right? Like high cost. And, and I mean, that, that concept is, is sitting there and it seems like, like my understanding is that these community land trusts can kind of disrupt that thing that pushes people where they can live. Like you can't afford where you used to live kind of situations. I mean, that's kind of one of the policy tools for that, right? No, I, I, th- I think exactly. You know, many areas of Detroit have you know, very low home values or very low land prices. And I think whenever we see that, there's a lot of concern that, you know, some investor is going to come in and, you know, price people out of the market or just the sort of natural shift in the market will make the area inaccessible to residents. And I really sort of see Mm -hmm. a land trust, which would really kind of put the property in the hands of the residents that are there and sort of allow them to benefit long-term from the growth in the area and just reinvest those proceeds into those properties as a really interesting tool and one I'd love to kind of see play out more in the city. So no, there, there aren't any yet though. There's no land trust in Detroit yet. No, there are, 
the city of Detroit is working on a land trust uh, strategy, kind of a pilot program. And I know there are several nonprofits who have kind of had very tentative preliminary discussions with us right now. But as of yet, there are no active land trusts that I'm aware of. Well, that's an exciting prospect. I want to I want to stay posted on that one. I'm very curious of what happens to the neighbors of that boundary, right? Like if if you go into a zone in a community land trust and you like long term create like commitment to the health of the housing stock and you reinvest in your housing stock and you make like this bubble of like strong community committed livers, right? People who own and like long term commit. How does that impact the edges? of that thing, the outer edge. Do they want to like then get annexed into the community land trust? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a really curious way. Like I want to see how those things play out over time. And, you know, I don't know. I'm not, not aware of many land trusts that would replicate the sort of, you know, economic and real estate conditions of Detroit. I think they're oftentimes Mm -hmm. a tool in more sort of, up market or kind of, you know, uh, higher demand areas. And so I'm really curious to see how that plays into this as well, because I think there will become a, a, a very stark divide in terms of investment and uh, security long term. Right on. So the thing that I'm curious about is state policy and your knowledge of the state policy set up surrounding land banks a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference between the Ohio law and the Michigan law, for example, or other states' laws um, and how land banks finance themselves. And in um, the state of those things right now, if you're willing to weigh in on that. Sure. You know, I think among state enabling laws, you know, Michigan was blessed with having a sort of very early law. Um, it came, you know, several years before most other states, really, I think, in large part, thanks to Dan Kildee's hard work. But as a result, Michigan, I don't think, really got to benefit from the experience of other states and its own experience in some ways. And so Michigan's law, I think, really sort of starts with a premise of market-based responses to blight. And so I think the sort of underlying thought was that you know, land banks would acquire these properties and they'd have value and so they'd be able to sell them mm-hmm. and you know, live off the proceeds of these properties, uh, which I think at least for the DLBA, we found very difficult. You know, the modal situation for us is that we will spend about $2,500 preparing a house for sale. And that includes, you know, the staff time to inspect it, the uh, maintenance to clean it out and prep it, as well as the title work. And then we'll sell it for about $1,000. Yeah, making something tax productive again when it's in that. It's resource intensive. It's expensive. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Whereas I think, you know, the state I'm probably most uh, familiar with is Ohio, which I think sort of in recognition of this sort of challenge for Michigan land banks, Jim Rokakis in his wisdom built in sort of a dedicated stream of funding. And so I believe Ohio land banks get 5%, but I could be mistaken on the actual figure of the penalties and interest of all tax delinquent properties in that county each year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like the tax delinquency fees or something. Mm-hmm. I think I think they negotiate it with the county or something like that. Like it's up to five. I think that's right. But I, I think that puts them in a much more sort of 
stable and advantageous a position to Michigan land banks. You know, I think Michigan land banks are more likely to live year to year because there's always a little bit of unpredictability in funding, whereas I think the Ohio model that's shared by other states now as well really sort of smooths that out and makes it much more regular and easy to kind of plan for you know, long-term strategy. Right, right. When you have 86,000 properties in your inventory, having a long-term strategy and stable financing might be helpful, right? Mm-hmm. Not only for Detroit, but probably the entire state of Michigan. And I, and I think there's a couple different things that are always moving at the state level in Michigan to try to figure this out, right? Like the Michigan Land Bank Authority, like this is kind of, it seems like it's kind of part of the mission of the Michigan Land Bank Authority is to try to try to solve this issue so that land banks have more stability so that they can do the good work, right? Mm-hmm. I'm curious um, if you have things on the top of your mind, like any topics that you wanted to cover, we can always spend a couple minutes on things that, that you were hoping to bring up um, before we close up. You know, I think you, uh, I think we've covered a lot of the sort of things I'd hope to talk about, but I, I think the, the thing that I think we're working on that may become more relevant to a lot of our peers is really the sort of thinking about working in low value markets. And, you know, there are, we talked a little bit about the uh, idea that, you know, land banks were developed with this idea of a market-based response, but the reality is in many of the places we're working, the cost of rehabbing a structure is significantly more than the after repair value of the property. And so I think we're just now kind of beginning to work more more and more in these environments and kind of working on a lot of strategies. And I'd, you know, mm-hmm. love to kind of begin a dialogue with other land banks and other cities with how to really crack this nut because I, I suspect that um, we're not alone in this. And, you know, I think the sort of standard thinking, for example, with land banks is when you're operating in a very weak market, you really want to like, uh, you really want to like a constrained supply to really now not overwhelm demand. But what we've actually found is that when we enter a low value market, when we make a number of properties available all at once, it actually tends to sort of develop this cohort dynamic where a bunch of buyers will come in all at once because they have, then have the certainty that all these other properties will be addressed all at the same time. And it's been really an interesting one. And I think there are a lot of sort of tools available to land banks like this cohort dynamic or, you know, this idea we've been playing, we've sort of found of uh, developing self-fulfilling prophecies for neighborhoods where once you sort of announce an intent or a strategy, we've noticed demand start, start to surge in these areas. Robbie, that is that like gives me goosebumps. That's exciting stuff, man. That's like anecdotal evidence of like a strategy, like a re a, a relaunch strategy for like corridors. Yeah, I mean, and I think we're very much at the sort of like you know tip of the iceberg here. We're learning a lot as we're going because you know the land bank started out with this build from strength a strategy where we started our work in the strongest neighborhoods with the you know most stable housing stock and worked out. And so even though average housing prices in Detroit have doubled in the last five years, we are still outracing the market. And so we're operating increasingly in areas with lower and lower home values than we've worked before. And so, you know, when I started at the land bank, about a third of our structures were in, you know, markets with MLS values below $15 a square foot. And now it's north of two thirds. Wow. 
So with this, that gets really exciting for me is, what is the behavior of the market in the low market environment? What do the dynamics look like in terms of the data? And how can we learn from those dynamics to make strategic uh, investments that are catalytic to positive generation of, you know, at the end of the day, it's tax revenue, but, but it's, it's economy and it's quality of life above the ground, like regenerating like opportunity in these areas. And so this is something I get really into because it's, there's not a lot of good information on this. And that's like the Dynamometric software. Our neighborhood Intel software is, mm-hmm. is kind of made for this, right? Like it's like you literally can see shelves, like the margin, right? Like I'm an economist. So I'm like, where's the margin at? So if we can look at property sales or different types of KPI metrics about individual properties or the properties immediately around every property citywide and you turn it into a heat map and it's based on actual sales price, like, and you got real-time feeds of that data, you can see these areas where there is more value in the housing stock and then there's less value in the housing stock and then there's the boundary zone between the two, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can then filter against commercial property, whatever the interest is, like your own land bank properties or commercial properties that are land bank owned, and they fall into that shelf and they're currently a, a, a vacant, you can actually start to target your resources and, and show a potential investor or you know that group you were talking about, like a group of folks that you want to move all at once, that there's value on one side of the space. There's weaker market on one side. So the deal is good. You can get in you can get in for a relatively low price and you can draw that stronger market towards that weaker market. Exactly. I mean, I think I'm long overdue for a um, opportunity to see the software because it sounds like exactly the type of thing we're looking for. You know, I think one of the things we struggle with is that my experience has been weak housing markets tend to have more sort of informal economies and, you know, properties are transferred sometimes with deeds, sometimes just sort of over handshake deals, um, or there's lots of rampant deed fraud. There's, you know, a lot of sort of, uh, picking through that mess, right? It's a block and tackle. It's a block and tackle game. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, our ability to kind of hack through all of that noise and really kind of draw the insight, it would be so powerful for us. And, yeah, you know, something we're always working on, but, you know, need uh, help with still. Yeah, man. Love, love to do that. So, Rob Lynn, thank you so much for coming on to Ahead of the Curve today. I love diving into Detroit and I appreciate so much your mastery of of the inventory of the Detroit Land Bank and the work that you're doing. Learned so much. And uh, as these things, there's so many dynamics and so many changes always happen. Would, would love to have you on in the future. And uh, thank you so much. I just uh, want to thank you, Nigel. This has been a uh, wonderful chance to uh, talk shop with you. And I really am uh, so grateful to have the shot. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Looking forward to the next one, Rob. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ahead of the Curve. And special thanks to Robbie for joining us today.